Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name's Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Dancing Ledge Productions Chief Executive Lawrence Bowen about new BBC drama The Responder and the importance of nurturing new talent. Sarah Brocklehurst, founder and chief executive of new UK drama producer Brock Media on developing succession scribe Jamie Carragher's first solo project, and Abby Rostoggi, chief executive of 108 Media, about its recent acquisition of distributor DCD Rights. The Responder is a new BBC One drama starring Martin Freeman as a crisis-stricken, morally compromised urgent response officer working the night shift in Liverpool. The series was created by novelist Tony Schumacher, himself a former policeman, whose work came to the attention of celebrated screenwriter Jimmy McGovern, who in turn put him forward for support from industry training body screen skills and Fremantle-backed Dancing Ledge Productions. The latter's chief executive, Lawrence Bowen, whose company was also behind BBC drama The Salisbury Poisonings, an upcoming Disney Plus action comedy wedding season, spoke to Michael Pickard about The Responder, coping with Covid and the importance of nurturing new talent. Uh, lovely to be here, Michael, chatting to you. So I'm, I'm Lawrence Bowen. I am the CEO of Dancing Ledge Productions, but essentially work as an executive producer on all the things we do with Chris Carey, my partner. Uh, we've been around for, I think, just over five years. It's It's gone. It's like sort of, they're like light years. They've sort of gone in a in a flash, particularly the last two. Um, so I can't believe we're that old already. Um but we uh, were a drama scripted company, drama and comedy. We have backing from Fremantle, uh, who are our, our brilliant partners. And we have been lucky enough over the last few years to get a few things off the ground. And, uh, you know, we started off with with Porters, uh, with Dan Sefton, who I'd known for a long time and loved. And that was a, a, a hospital comedy series, like a, a kind of UK scrubs we did with UK TV, uh, starring brilliantly Rutger Hauer, unexpectedly as a, as a UK. NHS Porter, which I think we were very privileged was one of the last jobs he he did actually, you know, very sadly he passed away a couple of years ago. Um, and then we went on to, we had some involvement with a an amazing series uh, that was in Netflix called Delhi Crime, which we we, we developed and we um, were involved in the post-production of that, um, but we didn't physically produce. And then again, we had a similar role with The New Pope, where we exact produced the, the UK episodes, but it wasn't something that we had set up uh, but then we sort of came to our first sort of big proper drama high-end drama uh, a year or so ago which is the Salisbury Poisonings uh, which was a, a project that we we loved doing uh, and, and felt a real connection with all the real life people who were brilliant enough to let, let us in and tell their stories at such a sensitive time so soon after the event had happened uh, particularly with the Sturgis family and, and Nick Bailey and um, we finished filming that just before COVID and then luckily could, with the help of the farm, finish the post-production remotely. It was like an early remote finishing in post, which was new for everyone at the time. And then when it went out, which I think was in June 2020, wasn't it? It it just sort of went out in that very extraordinary time where since we'd filmed it uh, and learnt about all these new phrases like invisible poisoning and contagion and lockdown and track and tracing, 
which felt sort of quite science fiction to us in the context of the Salisbury poisoning. Since we'd made it, we, well, the whole world had been caught up in, in something where all those phrases suddenly became normalised. And so that, that sort of gave the drama an, an, an added level of interest, I think, when it went out. And really since then, we, we've just been very fortunate to get a few commissions through, which has meant that the last year of COVID have been busy, but obviously very challenging with all of the, the sort of COVID protocols. And we're, we're in the middle of filming a series with Disney Plus called Wedding Season, which is an amazing sort of genre-busting romance, comedy, action thriller, which is taking us through Scotland and Manchester to Las Vegas and Los Angeles. We're in the middle of that. Uh, we're just finishing filming Crossfire, the BBC One with Keely Hawes, which is written by Louise Doughty. It's her first piece as a screenwriter, because obviously she's an amazing novelist. So we're very excited about that. And then The Responder, which we filmed last year uh, in February, March uh, 21. Uh, we're re- really excited about that. Fantastic. And I mean, I mean, just as, as we kind of embark into 2022 and, and you sort of talk about, you know, you, you, you kind of got Salisbury poisonings away in those very early days of, of the pandemic and the lockdowns that we all experienced. I mean, how how is your company kind of set up for, for this coming year? What are kind of some of the, the industry challenges or, or some of the opportunities that you, you're kind of looking to take advantage of or, or avoid in, in the next yeah. 12 months? Well, I mean, the honest answer is you don't completely know at the moment, do you? You don't know what's going to come next. I think we, we've all had two or three or maybe four moments where we thought, right, that looks like the worst of the COVID is over and all of the COVID protocols for drama, which are really expensive and add a lot of money to the budget and they're very you know it's slower to film you sort of hope that will come to an end because it, it sort of it takes a little bit of, of, of the magic out of the process because you're just not able to connect with people in the way that you normally would when you're when you're making things uh, which can be quite punishing but as to exactly what how that will impact on filming in the year ahead I don't know I mean the, the good the good thing is that the protocols that have been put in place are, are really rigorous now and they're all really practiced and so you, you sort of hope that you've got a good system to kind of prevent the worst kind of outbreaks but in the end you have no you, you never have 100% control over that so you know we we are we're finishing off crossfire uh, in the UK now we're we're just about to start filming the last section of wedding season in America and we're we're prepping an, another series for BBC3 called Domino Day which we're we'll shooting later in the year but you, you just on a weekly basis have to respond to the very latest information about what's happening on, on COVID. And so I think it continues to be a very, very testing time, but a kind of some, somewhat surreal one because at the most sort of difficult time to film almost ever in the UK, uh, there happens to be, you know, an explosion in the number of things that are being filmed. And so you've got this sort of, uh, this conflict between those two things and also the number of people available to film, uh, both in terms of talent, but also, you know, crews and HODs. And so it's a really, really interesting time. It, it is it genuinely, you know, it's definitely a challenging time as well. But it's just great to have, you know, some some productions up and running. But but once they are up and running, there's a lot to to worry about really in terms of how you keep them safe. No, absolutely. And and I guess dancing ledge a big part of the work you do beyond what we see on screen is is the work you're doing behind the scenes, um, particularly with writers and and bringing new talent through. 
I mean, can you tell us a bit about, um, I guess, particularly the writer and resident scheme that you run and, and also perhaps some of the, the mentoring opportunities you're involved with? Yeah, definitely. Uh, we, we When I set up Dancing Edge about, um, you know, five or so years ago, I'd already run another production company for a while. And uh, it's a kind of peculiar business making drama or comedy or certainly making scripted because the, the lead times and the development periods are kind of insane, you know, from a kind of human and emotional and spiritual and practical level you know if you're developing a project for two or three years which you put your heart and soul into and then it can it can die in a single email sometimes you know like an execution squad I mean that is quite punishing I certainly found it punishing and so when I set up um, Dancing Ledge I really really wanted to find a way of making the process of developing and making drama have some real value in addition to obviously the headline which will always remain the headline is making sure that the programs themselves are as brilliant as they should be but if the process has value it's not everything pegged on that day that it transmits you know that day and how the program lands and how many people watch it and how well it sells you know all of those things are fundamental to the company a company thriving you know and and to and to success really but you know all those thousands of hours that go along to get to that end point have to have more value I think and so I'd always worked with new talent one of my first jobs I worked as a script reader initially in my 20s after a a few years of cleaning jobs and um, I helped set up a place called First Film Foundation and and got to know a lot of new writers doing that and so ever since then really I've really enjoyed working with new talent it's an important isn't it for us as an industry to to find new people and 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 it keeps the industry relevant doesn't it if you've got new voices coming in and so when I said Dancing Ledge Up, we, we wanted to, to have a, a write-in-residence, a bit like a theatre, because I'd, I'd worked a little bit in theatre when I was in my 20s as well. Uh, and with the investment from Fremantle that essentially had sort of got Dancing Ledge going like a startup, I just thought, well, look, we should put a bit of money into a bursary so every year we can have a new writer in the office as part of the company and they can sit in on meetings. And, and that was a real pleasure to do. And we had some great some great sort of writers have come out of that. Uh, one of whom Lauren Sequeira has written Domino Day. But also what I think it did is sent a signal out that that's how we like to work. And so with Screen Skills, uh, they, with their writers committee, they were keen to, to find a kind of scheme or a project that might allow them to get behind writers. And so they approached us and we together came up with a scheme where we could get really, really established writers to support new writers. And the, the key thing is we asked the very established writer to nominate the new writer themselves rather than us saying here's somebody that we like occasionally you know if a very established writer doesn't have a specific suggestion we can suggest people but a lot of the time is established writers you haven't quite known how they can help somebody new because obviously they've got ridiculously busy careers and lives of their own um, being given an opportunity through us to give that new writer a, a bursary and then in return what the established writer does is essentially agree to read one or two drafts of that project as it's being written and then to help the writer sort of place it and help set it up so you know we've had amazing new writers coming through and, and mentors like Levi David Adai and Lucy Preble and Jimmy McGovern and Paul Abbott and and uh, Paula Milne and, you know, Jack Thorne, the, mo- the most amazing writers in the UK, and they've all nominated new writers. And then our job is really to help sort of run that um, and then to do workshops and, and help the new talent meet people and sort of meet each other and create a sort of culture around it. And so 
that has grown really well over the last few years and and uh, and right now it's being funded by both ITV who were funding it alone for a while and now screen skills again and then we run a parallel scheme with the BBC to help new directors mentee directors so what, what that means to us as a company is that at any one time we've probably got 20 to 30 new writers and directors that are involved in some of these schemes that we're running plus we have a writer in residence and we do writing workshops as well and so it just I mean it's partly because we think it's a good thing to do but it's also really good for us as a company you know because it, it introduces us to some of the best new writers around um, and it just keeps you relevant you know when you've got really new people coming in uh, and listening to what their point of view you know what their outlook is in the world and then finally the, the way that the very established writers have sort of given their time and also their kind of their contacts and knowledge that new writer when it's somebody they've selected themselves I think it makes it sort of very personal so there are quite a few writers like Nicole Leckie who's come out of that has gone on to write and direct the TV version of her amazing one woman play Superho uh, that are really kind of flourishing so it's all it's all part of trying to have a culture isn't it as an industry and as a company and um, it's just become one of one of the USPs I think for the dancing ledge and we we love doing it it's just um, it's just a great part of what we do and every, everything feeds off everything else. We met Tony Schumacher for the first time, which was brilliant because he was somebody who Jimmy McGovern had been introduced to originally. He's obviously Liverpool-based and Jimmy met him and I think had read one example of his already. Um, but then when he was meeting him, it, it came just after us approaching Jimmy and saying, would you like to work on the scheme? He said, well, I'm just about to meet, you know, this guy, Tony, for a drink. So are you saying that um, what that means is that we uh, essentially Essentially, over a pint, I can offer him a bursary, and I said, "Yes, it is." You know, so um, uh, so t- Tony was brilliantly mentored by Jimmy, and then unknown to me, uh, Tony, when he was writing the Responder, had always had Martin Freeman in his sights as a possible lead actor for the central character Chris Carson and Chris Carson is not um, specifically based on Tony uh, but Tony is an ex-policeman and in The Responder he's really um, it's emotionally autobiographical in that it's about a policeman who works as a night responder up in Liverpool which Tony did for a while uh, but also it's about his mental health journey and how punishing the job is on him emotionally and mentally and how he deals with it and whether he'll be destroyed by it or whether whether through the course of a week of night shifts, they'll find a way through back to the light. You know, that's the sort of central premise and pitch at the heart of it. So, so Tony is really sort of channeling a lot of his own experiences. And so when he'd written the, the first episode of The Responder through the mentoring scheme, and Jimmy had had a look at it and we'd had a look at it, Tony called me up and just said, look, I, uh, I really, really would love Martin to play the lead. Would you show it to him? And then it was just one of those great sort of moments of coincidence really where because we have a development deal with Martin and I did the Eichmann show with Martin a few years ago and you know we think Martin is brilliant and and Martin obviously likes getting involved in projects and the development of them you know as early as possible in order to sort of um, have real input I was able to send it to Martin and and, and literally I kid you not in in under a day he'd read it and then he called me up and said I love it I want to do it definitely want to do it and then his his um his brilliant manager uh, AJ 
Christian, Michael Wiggs called me out the next day and said, you do realise this is the fastest that Martin has ever said yes to a project. You know, it's like we've never had this before, you know. And um, so, so what happened then is through the first year of COVID when we were developing it, we, we sort of kept touching base with Martin and just had his input into the character and the scripts along with working with, with, with Tony. And um, we, we early on pitched it to the BBC, to Mono Qureshi and Piers Wenger. Uh, and, and it was just, you know, a good old fashioned pitch, Hollywood pitch, where we all turned up in an Addison Lee with Martin. We'd made a little sort of teaser film, but essentially all we had was the first script and a few pages on how the series could develop. And then we we sat there, and we, we had a couple of meetings uh, to discuss it with Piers and Mono. Uh, and then I think initially one with Patrick Holland. Uh, and then uh, and then the BBC commissioned it, which was brilliant. And, and the reason they commissioned it is because I think they, they, like us, could see in Tony this extraordinary voice where there's the authenticity of his experience as a policeman, but also there's this sort of poetry inside him, which is extraordinary. So, so while he's writing about the absolute sort of the detail and micro detail of real life and real emotions and what it's really like to be on that sort of front line as a policeman from his point of view, there's also something kind of slightly magical or lyrical in there as well. And so um, that's really, really unusual. And the fact that Tony's now, um, I, I think he won't mind me saying so, but uh, he's over 50 and I'm going to say he's under 55. Let's call him early 50s. And um, he, you know, he's had a life. He's had an extraordinary life. He's probably done about 50 jobs, you know, one of which was, you know, driving a minicab for a year, um, homeless, where he was sleeping in the minicab. I think it was just him and his dog for a while in the car. And so his his journey through life has been a really extraordinary one. And he's kind of, he's pouring all of that, that life experience into the responder. And he's doing it. In a, it's a very interesting, interesting format because it's if format's the right word because I think he's writing it very intuitively most of the time but essentially what it distills into is a series about a night responder so there's a kind of it's clearly a, there's a police series element but also as I said earlier it's the emotional and mental health story of his um, spiraling downwards within that from a mental health perspective so there's something very interesting about that particularly at the moment and then the third element is a crime story you know there's a thread that he pulls in episode one that then turns into a rope that turns into a chain really and and how he manages to deal with that huge problem that he sort of almost unleashes on himself by trying to help somebody in episode one that becomes an ongoing story running through it so you have the the sort of nightly stories of what you do as a night responder so those police stories you have that ongoing crime story that kind of snowballs and then you have the story of whether he will survive emotionally and, and personally the week and whether his family life will survive. So there are all these things going on together. But what was brilliant is that we um, we hired a uh, an amazing casting director who uh, Chris Carey, my partner and fellow executive producer and responder, had worked with before, um, called Robert Stern, who um, is Nina's partner uh, and does The Crown and obviously has done loads of other things. But he went up to Liverpool and spent six months there 
there um, just meeting everybody because we wanted it to have as uh, be authentic as possible in terms of dipping into the uh, and 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 celebrating really all those amazing actors up in Liverpool or Liverpool Liverpool actors who don't live in Liverpool but who are who are brilliant and have, have moved out and um, and we were working with the Liverpool Film Fund at that point who'd come on with the BBC and with Fremantle to to fund it and so out of that we found these amazing newer Liverpudlian or Scouse actors who you'll see in episode one of Responder and then you know they develop particularly there are two characters called Marco and Casey and, and Marco is played by Josh Feenan and Casey by Emily Fenn and um, I think it's their first ever jobs and you know they're in their in their early 20s and you you look at them and there's just something so glorious about finding new actors just out of drama school at that age when they just feel so so right but but also we have as our, our one of our co-leads with Martin a brilliant actress called called Adele Adideo who plays a a kind of a, a, a new policewoman in episode one who's being trained who's still you know at the sort of rookie stage you, you only see briefly in episode one and she's very very skeptical of the Martin Freeman character because he's really not policing by the rules he's he's breaking the rules to a certain extent she just doesn't like him and then in, in episode two because her partner is beaten up she's forced to become Martin Freeman's character's partner kind of squad car uh, partner as they go off into the Liverpool night together and so the relationship between those two is one of the things that defines the series and she's brilliant as well so and then we've got this sort of pantheon of the cream of Liverpool talent like Ian Hart and Mark Womack and Warren Brown and Rita Tushingham and you know David Bradley and just like an amazing group of actors so so we're very lucky in terms of how we tapped into Liverpool but the heart of it is has always been and will always be Tony Schumacher and him tapping into his truth and he and he is just so Liverpool born and bred you know so it's kind of like a homage to Liverpool and then the final thing I'd say is that because as I mentioned earlier there's this kind of truth and sort of reality almost documentary reality at, at times to what Tony's writing but also there's this kind of more lyrical personal emotional thing going underneath we really thought hard about how it should be directed who should direct it we, we'd got at, by, by this stage before we started filming an amazing producer called Rebecca Ferguson and so with Rebecca Rebecca leading it really we, we sort of made our list of directors and, and in the end uh, we we decided we'd work with a, a Flemish director a Belgian director called Tim Meelan uh, because sometimes there's something really interesting about getting somebody who's from outside a very specific cultural world to sort of come in and there's something about them being able to see what's universal about it being, but being able to look at that world in a slightly different way that you wouldn't be able to do if you came from it it's very interesting and he'd already done you know great shows like Peaky Blinders and he had directed some of the terror and uh, and he'd, he'd made a, a very successful feature film called The Patrick which had just done a, I think, won the the audience award at Toronto Film Festival, and so and 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 his vision of how he would direct it was to obviously capture the truth of it, but also to kind of find his own authorship. So you'll see when you watch it, there's something in the way that he's approached it that just heightens it a tiny bit to capture that that lyrical poetic thing that's going on in Tony's writing. And so we're really pleased with how Tim found his own language, you know, and how we managed to combine that with Tony's writing. So yes. Yeah, exciting to have it coming out you know after all, all that work through the dark nights of um 
of COVID and night shoots, lots of night shoots, which I, I'm, I'm a bit of an interloper in those as an executive producer. So I sort of will turn up occasionally and try and be positive, encouraging, but fully aware that I'm surrounded by 100 people who've just, you know, worked two months of night shoots in a row. And it's tough, you know, it's really, really tough. Yeah. So I'm very, very much indebted to, to all of them because mm. they really put their hearts and souls into it. And, and I think it is special. We're really proud of it. You know, there's something, uh, there's something very authored about it and it's it's different as a police show because of all the things that I've said and because of Tony's authorship and the way that he sees the world through it but there's something very authentic about it and there's something very now about it I think because it's it's essentially um, looking at what it's like to be uh, a policeman on the front line and but also it's telling a very personal and emotional of a family story for that specific character so it's bringing in a lot of extra layers that you maybe wouldn't normally get in this kind of format and um I, th- I hope people will respond well to that you never know do you so I'm, I'm ho- i hope they will lawrence bowen speaking with michael pickard theater producer sarah brocklehurst moved into cinema with the feature black pond followed up by emma jane unsworth adaptation of her own novel animals which debuted to great acclaim at the sundance film festival in 2019 She's now set up a new UK-based production company called Brock Media, backed by BBC Studios, with the aim of developing a high-end TV drama as well as further movies. Brocklehurst spoke to Ruth Laws about these moves and the first projects on her slate, including one from succession scribe Jamie Carragher. Can you tell me about why you decided to launch Brock Media, um, and particularly during a global pandemic? Yes. Um, well, I guess a global pandemic gives people the opportunity to reassess and reevaluate a lot of things. And for me, I spent a lot of time thinking quite deeply about what kind of production company I wanted to run and what that would look like as a business and how I might go about achieving that. And I've, you know, I'd learned an awful lot um, producing in independent feature films but I've always wanted to produce television as well and I've always wanted to grow a significant production company that can be a, a home for great talent and um, and I wanted that move from film into TV to be a really serious one so one of the big things that happened during this time is that I hired a fantastic TV exec Katie Brown and with her experience and her talents we were able to build a TV slate um, and the plan was to build a TV slate that would be exciting enough and impressive enough to attract investment. And that's what we did. And we worked really closely with some terrific writers, many of whom I had existing relationships with from uh, film and theatre and many new writers who we brought into the company as well. And we built this fantastic slate and a really exciting vision for the business. And that attracted the investment from BBC Studios. Um, and it was thanks to that deal that this new company, Brock Media, was born. So it's been quite a good pandemic in that respect. <laughs> yeah, pretty busy. Um, what is it about TV? Because obviously you've got background in film and theatre, so, so why TV? Well, the way that I approach producing and storytelling is that I don't really think so much about the specific medium. What excites me is working with talented people who have incredible stories to tell and trying to find the best way to tell those stories and reach the audiences you know who will who will be the best fit and so what excites me about being able to work in this way with this new company is that we build relationships with incredible storytellers and then we find the best way and the best 
format and the best medium to engage audiences with the stories that they want to tell. And I think television is, you know, I think it's the the lines between television and and film are, you know, pretty fine these days. And um, in terms of, you know, in terms of the creative aspect, but also in terms of, you know, co-production, which I'm very well versed in from from my indie filmmaking. So yeah, I don't see, I, you know, obviously they're different industries and there's different business models and there's different networks and contacts and relationships to have. But my approach um, across all those forms of media is the same, um, which is to support the talent, think about the business model and the audience um, and find the best possible way to bring those ideas and those scripts to an audience. And do you specialise in any specific genres? Our slate is mainly drama and comedy. Um, we are looking at genre projects too. It's all scripted. We we have quite a lot of literary adaptations. We have definitely become a trusted home for a lot of all authors and a lot of journalists who want to adapt their work for the screen. We tend to work on quite, I don't, this, isn't a, this isn't a specific genre, but I would say that our projects are very authored and there's a lot of variety, but I think there's a sort of common thread throughout all our projects, um, which is bold voices, honesty, fearlessness, humour, heart. A lot of the projects that we are working on are quite personal to the people who have created them. Uh, Some, for example, are based on memoirs. And that's quite interesting, you know, I think as a producer to be working with writers on what we sometimes describe as their everything show, be it their show that, you know, they pour a lot of themselves into a lot of their their life and their experiences. And um, yeah, I think that's a real privilege as a producer to be able to have you know built those relationships and that trust and that space in order to you know work with writers on projects that they're so passionate about. Um, I know particularly with um, Book IB it's in- incredibly competitive for um, producers and production companies I just wondered what your tactics are when it comes to getting the rights to books. <laughs> My tactics um, I've been quite lucky with the with the books that I've been able to option and I wonder whether that's I think it's choosing books that you're really passionate about and making a really strong case for it. And definitely over the last 10 years, I did not have the biggest option fee between my competitors. But I, on a number of occasions, still won the book because I could show a real connection with the material, perhaps, but also to give an author the opportunity to adapt their own work and to share in that process rather than remove it from them. And I guess choosing books that that I really saw something in. So yeah I don't know about tactics <laughs> I don't think I have a secret to that um, but I think it has to be passion and uh, a clear vision for how you might get it made. Um, and what's currently on your development slate that you can talk about? So there are two projects that I can talk about which I think are really great examples of the calibre of talents that we are working with. So as people may know I have a wonderful relationship with Emma Jane Unsworth. Emma was the author of the novel Animals and then the 
screenwriter of the film adaptation, which I produced. And that was a real success for us. Uh, we, we had a wonderful premiere at the Sundance Film Festival, a fantastic release across the UK. And Emma won the British Independent Film Award for Best Debut Screenwriter. So it really was, it was a, it was a great journey, that film, and we're incredibly proud of it. And it was the beginning of what I hope will be a very long and fruitful relationship. And so one of our projects is based on her new book, After the Storm, um, which is a memoir. uh, And it's uh, about Emma's experience of postnatal depression. It's an incredibly brave piece of writing. Um, It's also, because it's Emma, incredibly funny at the same time. And we're using it as the basis for a series which uh, will be a very vibrant, very honest take on early motherhood and family and mental health and falling back in love with yourself after a dark time. Uh, And then we're also working with a really, really exciting young writer called Jamie Carragher. And Jamie is part of the writing team on Succession. And uh, we are developing his first original series, which is about a close-knit group of students at Oxford University. And this is a big, ambitious show for a young audience, uh, which explores obsessive rhyme rivalries and privilege and the effect of grief among young people. So we're really excited about that and about Jamie. They sound like fascinating projects. Um, I just wanted to check, is Emma writing the screenplay for the series as well? Absolutely. Awesome. And where, where would you like to see these projects eventually? Well, we approach all our projects, you know, on a case by case basis. And I think it's very much about suiting, you know, finding the right platform for the right story. And, you know, as a company, we're very interested in, you know, we want to be working with all the channels and all the streamers and and finding the best possible fit for a particular project definitely UK broadcasters as well as as well as streamers depending on which project it is and can you explain a little bit about the deal with BBC Studios and what that means to to Brock Media because I know that there's an option for them to take an equity stake so I just wondered if that's being explored at all well the deal is an incredible opportunity you know it's it's exactly what we needed to scale up this company and the deal is a partnership deal it encompasses development production and distribution uh yes they do have an option to take an equity stake it's a little early to talk about that but we're really excited about what this partnership can bring and you did mention it in one of your earlier answers i'm assuming the answer is probably going to be yes but um are you open to co-productions and if so who would you like to work with yes i am open to co-productions I would like to work with whoever is going to be the best best partner for a particular project. But um, but yeah, absolutely open. Yeah, I don't think I have more to say on that. Would you look to work with international partners or keep it kind of UK based? Absolutely, yeah. Uh, open to working with international partners. Again, it's about um, what will best benefit the particular project. Um, we have some projects on the slate that have a very strong international component. And, you know, in due course, it would be good to be thinking about partners outside the UK as well. And you mentioned um, earlier about Katie, who is head of development at Brock Media. I was just wondering if you could talk to me about your other hires as well. Yeah, definitely. So so Katie's been working with me uh, already for the last 15 months, as I mentioned, and she is now the head of development. She is incredibly experienced development executive, uh, storyliner. Um, she has an incredible talent working with writers to storyline entire series 
interviews with them and she's just been incredibly good at her job and a wonderful support for the for, for me within the company. I have recently hired Rahina Cameron Pereira, who joins us from Empress Films, and she will be associate producer. We've also hired Melise Codot, who joins us from Film 4 as development executive. And all of us within the company are working on projects across TV and film. There is no real distinction to the way that we approach that there aren't sort of separate departments so as a team we're all feeding in our ideas and our relationships into one big pool uh, rather than sort of splitting off film in, from tv and, um, and and will you be hiring anyone else anytime soon are there any current available positions or is that your sort of team for now <laughs> that is the team for now and we also have a, a development assistant uh, amy yo joining us soon as well so that's us for now the other thing i wanted to ask you about um just because some of the some other features that I've been writing recently have been focusing a lot on um, the boom of non-English language dra- drama, particularly after um, Squid Game. Um, I just wondered what you think that means for UK content and other English language content. I think um, I think there's always going to be a huge appetite for UK content. I think we have exceptional talent in the UK, uh, and I don't see that demand waning anytime soon more the merrier really yeah I suppose both can absolutely coexist yeah Yeah. one goes up doesn't mean the other one goes down yeah I think Um, the audiences are probably all you know I think there's just such a such a huge appetite content generally so I think there's room for everyone do you think the pandemic has affected the type of scripted content that audiences want to watch do you think for example just off the top of my head the audiences kind of want to watch more comedies because they're they're after something a bit lighter after you know a couple of grueling years it's hard to say perhaps and um, we tend to, depending on what's the hot show of the moment, you, you might make certain assumptions. And, you know, when everybody was feasting on Bridgerton and Emily in Paris, perhaps that's what you would think. But then people are also watching much, much less sort of positive shows as well. So I don't think so. I think people are just looking for really, really good TV. And wonderfully, we've been spoilt with so much great content. Um, so the standards are even higher. And then for my final question it's quite broad but I'm just interested to hear your thoughts on this um what do you think the challenges and opportunities are for the industry this year I think there are lots of opportunities I mean obviously production is is a challenge remains a challenge but I think the pandemic's shown us just how vital entertainment is and that there is a huge demand for for scripted tv um, and I think there's a real opportunity to be serving audiences with positive and distinctive and diverse stories. I think it's a really booming age for this. And um, I'm excited about the role that Brock Media can play in that. Sarah Brocklehurst speaking with Ruth Laws. Now over to Nico Franks to introduce our next interview. Financier, producer and distributor 108 Media completed its acquisition of UK indie DCD Media for just over $6 million in December 2021 and is eyeing up further M&A activity in 2022 and beyond. The deal included DCD Rights, one of the UK's leading distributors, which shop shows such as My Life is Murder, Aussie Gold Hunters and Bridezilla's. 108 Media said it will help DCD Rights expand internationally and step up its scripted activities, while allowing it to remain an independent distribution company with a catalogue of more than 3,500 hours of programming. According to 108 Media, the acquisition is the first of several major corporate acquisitions being negotiated within the next 18 months as it seeks to become what it calls a first-tier co-production specialist with its own cross-border and cross-cultural studio system. 
I caught up with the company's CEO, Abby Rastogi, to find out more about the M&A push, as well as discuss international co-production opportunities involving 108, and ask whether emerging markets are now front and center of the global TV business. The company's got humble, humble beginnings. We started out as a, as a very boutique film di- uh, distribution company out of Canada, but then over years, you started expanding into different segments of the business. And uh, so as we cried, I would call it the food chain, uh, we looked at emerging markets, the big angle. I mean, let's be, be candid. The world didn't need another Canadian distribution company from where I saw it, uh, you know, or, or we were just not strong enough to, to bring anything valuable to the marketplace. And, you know, we were, a, a, as I said, a boutique company. So we spent a lot of time really going door to door, figuring out how the emerging markets content was working. And, you know, I mean, we could see the squid games coming. You could see the crazy rotations coming. So I say it as a, as a, I, I tried to go and catch a, as a surfer. I tried to catch a wave in the emerging markets, which I knew was coming. And, and so, so that's what we've done. And now our overall plan is to be able to bring a diverse uh, kind of content, you know, the cross-cultural and cross-border mandate globally. And, and that's where we want to be at. And, 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 you know, London became a good central place to come and tie that all up together. All of our team members, they're all part of either production, distribution, or development executives. So, so we're building absolutely real boots on the ground infrastructure. So all of the, 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 the locations we mentioned, and we're expanding further down. For us, it's, it's not just uh, sales executives. Like We're not just out there to go and sell some of our stuff, to call it bluntly. It's more about understanding what ha- what's happening locally. So, so these are all local executives in the marketplace who, who have the pulse of the market. And then what we're trying to do is connect them all from a global team of what we think we represent. But yeah, it, it, it's a full-on functioning teams in these markets. What would you say are the emerging markets or, or when does a market move from being emerging to having fully emerged? I mean, in a way you could say you couldn't call Korea an emerging market, even though it's going to keep emerging for a long time, for a while. But if you have somebody like Netflix who's saying, we'll spend half a billion dollars in a market, don't call it emerging, it's almost there. But I think we take a broader look at emerging markets as markets outside of the Western world, which are now coming to the world stage in the in the media sector. Is, is that at least what I would look at it? So Southeast Asia is terrifically strong for us. You know, uh, India has got its own pace. You know, Japan, Korea predominantly have been great high growth markets locally in those regions, but now they're becoming much more relevant on a global stage. So that, that's what makes the difference. Uh, I think we're going to definitely expand into Africa and Middle East. So, so I, I look at these markets, which are for me emerging are markets that where the content is starting to now make a dent or noise on a global stage. And it's not about one-off. It's more about this can be a constant conversation. It's tricky because I suppose in the local content, you're wanting to speak to local players to then keep right so that you can sell around the world. But I suppose companies that are most interested in this kind of content potentially are the streamers and they want to take global rights. So how are you balancing that? Well, that's uh, that's uh, that's uh, <laughs> that's the hardest hard, ha- that's the hardest skill to acquire now is just to slice and dice the rights. And I think I think the way I would describe our distribution model, or at least what we look at where the world would go, it's I would call it it's just highly customized and highly curated. So I, I'm not sure if it's one shoe fits all model, but you know there's certain certain amount of local content that that we know is going to go and can globally be fit, but with individual players. I mean, if you if you got a content that's been greenlit by a free television. It might not be right for the, all the pay TV networks globally, but it might might not even be right for streamers. But it might be other free TV players that might still want to be engaging in that content. So I think, I think that's the navigation we're doing on ongoing basis now. And I think uh, it's 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 a process. You know, the more we learn, 
and, and some days the more we get rejected, the better, smarter we get about how to how to adapt. It's it's a learning curve, almost like a, a daily basis. The only thing I explain or share with my team is to don't get tied down to business models. A new day is a new deal. That's how I look at it. Towards the end of 2021, there was a big deal involving 108 Media um, and DCD Media. So you acquired the company, so its yeah. library and its production yeah. companies. So tell me about how that deal originated. Well, I, I mean, I've been tracking DCD Media for a good two and a half years. So it wasn't, uh, it was a long pursuit of, 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 I would say, and considering it was an aim-listed vehicle, so it had its own challenges. And, and for us, as a boutique media company to go and start the first M&A transaction from, from DCD was certainly, you know, we, we aspired bigger than we thought. But, but I think that the fundamental driver there was that we thought Nikki Davis and with, with David Craven and, and Steve there, the senior management, they've just, they've just brilliant an excellent team for what they do on television distribution globally. Uh, so for us, it was very complimentary because in the last two or three years, we've invested very heavily investing mostly towards original IPs. We represent over 35 books that we've been, you know, investing very heavily in developing as far as we can. Uh, and, and we thought it would be great to marry that with the right distribution platform. And, and, and so I thought that was a very complimentary place. So, you know, and, and I think this is the first of the several acquisitions that we are planning from a, from an M&A perspective in the next couple of years. Uh, but to me, that was a company that we looked around with just excellent, excellent management team. Simple as they know what they're doing. So you, know, you just want to go and plug into that infrastructure. So where do you see in terms of the balance between those non-English and English language? Well, you know what? I, I, I think it's very interesting for us. I mean, somebody else asked me the question the other day was, is, I think that the way our approach to content most of the time is now, it's a bit more agnostic on the language perspective. I think we have to, you know, if we believe in the right story and if we think it has, it has the appeal, I, call, I usually call it if it's going to excite, thrill, provoke, inspire, somewhere some some audience it doesn't have to be gold some audience in the world you know do we have the team to go find it so i would say dcd historically has done great english language content but we are looking at content that is english language and international we're looking at content that's just uh, just international but for us we're it's a very fluid state like we would not make decisions on a content i think the economics of the content decision making is different on the language of it but I don't think we'll make a decision on the content based on the language itself. I think we're making decision on the content if it's if it's exciting enough, it's if it's cool enough, it's, if it's different enough, uh, and then the language follows up, and then the numbers follow further from there. Your CS try to experiment quite a bit with the language, if you ask me. <laughs> and DCD was is mostly distribution, but it does have some production assets uh, yeah, in that's, the UK that's and the states. Yeah, they were they were quite well. I mean, they were doing that. That's not something they've been extremely active in the past. But I think that would be something uh, it's for the management to decide if they want to revisit. So, is distribution when you were mentioning further M and A deals? Is it is it catalog kind of finished programming that you're looking to acquire or production assets? Well, I think what we're looking to acquire is is look. We are into into we're focusing a lot more on the infrastructure builds to fill the gaps in the I would call it the independent film and television space from an international perspective. Uh, so I think we're looking for partners, companies that will come and fit that strategy where you know we want to kind of be at the nexus of, of corporate and an indie and a cross-cultural mandate. So, so you know, I think catalogs less, unless that's very straight economics discussion, 
I think it's mostly around production entities. It's it's a lot around IPs. But if I was to summarize it, it's it's across the production and distribution verticals that we'll be focusing primarily on. And how are you funding the M and A push? Yeah, so that's good. So you know, we've got we've got excellent sound investors, you know, in the business that that are financing these transactions. So so you know, but we are, uh, you know, like any other media company that's in a growth stage, we are we are accessing capital from the, from the corporate market, like you know, capital markets and so on. So so that's that's the that's the way we're kind of funding it. So it's, I call it self as well as third-party capital coming to support that. With all the consolidation, there is huge mammoths of the of the industry, you know, looking at companies like Banerjee, huge super indies that have turned into just distribution giants. Is it a very, very difficult task to get attention when when there, there's so many big companies out there? No, I look, I, I think our growth mindset is very, very different. You know, our, our commitment is to creating this international and very authentic content. So for us, all of our strategy around the MA is, is focused on content first. We exactly know the kind of content we want to be around and the filmmakers and the creators we want to support and drive. So I think we're very we're a little bit more with a with our head down going and executing that of what we know. So for us, taste making of that content is a lot more important. Uh, and I think the next couple of years, hopefully, as our projects start to come to marketplace, it starts to validate what we've said. But I think that, uh, you know, the, the bigger corporate companies, you know, they're doing what they have to do to support the balance sheets they have. Uh, you know, I, I, I would call it, there's enough space, there's enough room for, 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 I would call it sharp knives here and there to kind of try out a few moves. So I, I'd, I'd say... In fact, that space is a bit more scary for us because that's not our space. You know, to, to be, to, you know, big and bold is not something I'd see us be attempting. I think we're more uh, nimble and quick and fast. It's more, more, more. I, I would describe ourselves as to be. So those are the kind of acquisitions we're looking for. Those are the market spaces we want to create. How about co-productions? Because obviously, when we talk about international programming, sometimes we're talking about shows that are are a mix of different broadcasters from different countries or we're, we're talking about international programming like squid game where you know it's completely owned by one company um, and it's not a co-production but it feels very international to a lot of people well uh, look co-production is always attractive but for me the hardest part about co-production is i don't think we're going to pursue co-productions from an economic point of view to start with i think those tend to to work you know you're trying to put a square in a circle or whatever you call that analogy i think for us we want to pursue co-productions from a creative mindset I mean, I just had a conversation this morning with a, with a fairly big uh, player out of India. You know, it, it, we spend a, a good amount of time talking about the kind of content get that inspires us. So I think you can imagine the right co-productions will come out of that conversation because we're being inspired by the same storytelling. So I, I think at 108, we will try, we'll strive. I think co-productions chasing business models is not the ideal plan for us where we are. But it is it is important, and I think I'm I'm excited to explore co-productions a little bit outside of the the norm that we've we've seen a lot of U.S., Canada, a lot of European co-productions. You know, I think emerging markets and what the emerging markets can bring to the co-production arena is quite unique and different. You know, and a, and a different visual sense of the content, different taste. I mean, I think the most example people can talk about. You know, how would Squid Game have worked out as a co-production? Maybe it would, maybe it wouldn't, but you know. So it's all 
this all becomes a legend once the shows become hit. If they don't become a hit, nobody talks about that, right? Uh, so, so I think uh, my sense is uh, trying co-productions from a very international perspective. You know that that would be that would be fun. Yeah. And how is doing business? an international focused business out of the UK working out for you. So you're, you're relatively new to the UK, you know, yeah, I mean, a, I'm a, a post-Brexit company. How is that working? Well, I think it's, well, my wife is, should be a lot more happier because I can capture the world in the same time zone mostly. So, you know, when working out of Asia, it was a little bit, you know, you're upside down, you're doing Zooms till 11, 12 a.m. And then you're trying to capture LA at 7 a.m. So, so that was tough. But I think uh, the London allows me to be able to center connect. And I think what I, what I found was very, very good was that the, the kind of aspirations we have about the content, the story we want to do it. UK is a great base to, to be able to, to meet collaborators and people. You know, there seems to be such tremendous awareness of what's happening around the world. Uh, that, that, that really definitely helps us. Yeah. And how about the pandemic in, in a practical sense? How is that impacting you and also in a, in a kind of programming sense? I think, I think, look, I mean, it's, it's a start and a stop conversation. I'm sure with the next 10 years, we will be writing books about this. Then from a productivity, productivity perspective, in some ways, you're more productive because you're more Zoom focused and you're doing more things digitally. And But I think uh, I might be an old school. I, I think it's still a, a people's business. Uh, I think, uh, you know, we're all getting amazingly trying to be smart at inspiring people to buy shows off zoom and inspire ideas and storytelling off zoom but i think i think uh, it's something else when you, you kind of do those business in person so I, I can tell that my team certainly is feeling the itch of not being able to travel across different continents and being able to see the clients or people in person i think i think i call it like i am personally missing the serendipity that gets created by the randomness of our business where some of the best ideas come out of so, so if you're asking me what am I missing, it's the serendipity of that just comes comes some things. But, but I think look, we are adapting, and and but I also believe that we can't change 50, 70 years of work culture within three years. So I think it's like a rubber band; it's going to come back to to a place where people will find a new balance. I would call it it's a, it's a new balance of, of doing it. The demand's going to squeeze the supply, which is happening like any other industry. But, but I think. Yeah, we are witnessing that. We're we're seeing that, you know, uh, from from where we're trying to get to. But as much as it was a skill set to find the right co-production partners and the right platform or the right broadcaster to sell your show, you know, there are there's a nuance to that. I think you're going to find the same nuance in, in trying to put that crew and and a creative talent together now. So that's that's another serious jigsaw now. That that it was. I mean, I'm not saying it wasn't before, but it was a little bit lesser. But I think that that is also a new jigsaw now. So as much as you know, it's great you got to show greenlit, but where are you going to make it? Can you make? Can you afford to make it in this country? Maybe you can afford to make it, but you can't get the crew. You just can't find it. So I think I think, and then it forces us people to to adapt. It forces people to innovate. So I, I I do feel that you know, does it mean mean that companies like ourselves, boutique companies, who can give, who become a platform for emerging voices? That'd be awesome. You know, that that's great to do. You know. Do we find the next Tarantino and, and we, we happen to be because, well, of course, we can't afford to work with Tarantino. So, you know, but do we find the next one. So I, I look at it from a glass half full perspective. 
Abby Rastogi speaking with Nico Franks. That's all for this episode. You can hear more discussion by tuning in to the weekly review show on our C21 FM internet radio station, where you'll find new interviews airing from Monday. The podcast will be back next Friday. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Thanks for listening.